Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today, we are in my part of the world as we look at a murder in Cornwall, for which there was seemingly no motive. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club, that's Daniel Salawaski, Erin Gleeson and Sarah Davison. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. So let's check out the music we were listening to at the time of today's story, November 2003. The UK number one single was Fat Man's Scoop and the Crookling Clan with Be Faithful. Sugar Babes are at number six with Holding My Head. Yeah, me too. In the US, it was Baby Boy by Beyonce featuring Sean Paul in the top spot. And top-selling album in Australia this year was Delta Goodrum with Innocent Eyes. In the news, this month saw the first day of the Istanbul bombings, which was followed by further attacks on November the 20th, and Lionel Messi, who, excluding the Mighty Leeds United first team and under-23 squad, is probably the best player in the world, made his official debut for FC Barcelona in a friendly against Porto. At the Rugby World Cup final in Sydney, fly-half Johnny Wilkinson landed the winning drop goal in extra time as England beat Australia 2017. Did you watch that crazy England-Scotland game last week? Wow, amazing. Concord made its final ever flight, returning to Bristol, and Channel 4's soap opera Brookside, on air since the station was launched in 1982, ended after 21 years. And finally, Crowds swarm the streets in unprecedented scenes of unbridled joy across our nation as it was announced that Sophie, the Countess of Wessex, had given birth to her and Prince Edward's first child, a baby girl. The name escapes me. Today's story is from Delabol. It's a large village in North Cornwall, around 140 miles southwest of Bristol, with a population approaching 2,500. It's a quiet, peaceful place, a bit like the Emirates Stadium, best known for having the oldest working slate quarry in England. Speaking to to the press, detectives said that they believed that Joan Rodham, a 74-year-old widow who'd been murdered and dumped in a field behind her remote bungalow in Delabol, may have known her killer. Detective Chief Inspector Dave Dunn, leading a murder squad of more than 30 officers, said, In all probability, she knew her assailant. A post-mortem had revealed that the cause of death was asphyxiation. DCI Dunn continued that Joan was last seen on Thursday the 6th of November by the Coleman when he made his weekly delivery. A search was launched when a friend reported that he'd been unable to contact her and her body was discovered on Saturday the 8th of November. We presume that she was murdered inside the house, carried to the field and deposited, said DCI Dunn. Her killer tried to cover the body inside an upturned wheelbarrow and with a blanket from her conservatory that she used as a bed for her cat. When Joan was found in the field behind her home, she was barefoot and wearing only the night clothes she'd slept in the night before. The police were immediately under pressure to get a quick result. Cornwall's reputation as a quiet, safe place to live was under threat in the media. The discovery of Joan's body 
was made just three days after the brutal slayings of Carol and Graham Fisher at their bungalow near Weybridge, just a few miles away. I covered this story in podcast number eight. In addition to this, a third murder, that of 71-year-old farmer Les Bate, had also taken place in the area a year earlier and remains unsolved to this day. Around the community, there was genuine fear. One local resident, hairdresser Joe Moore, who styled Joan Rodham's hair every week, said, It's really frightening. I live here with another girl, and we've started locking the door as soon as we get in. I'm born and bred here, and this is a first for me. People in Cornwall were theorising that the three local crimes could be connected, and there was a serial killer potentially on the loose in Cornwall. Detectives didn't think that was the case, but they didn't want any more killings and began the murder investigation by closely looking at the life lived by Joan. Joan was 5 foot 4 inches tall, slender in build, and had previously worked as a dressmaker before relocating to Cornwall around 15 years earlier with her husband Frank. The couple didn't have children, but she was close with her wider family and she relished the visits from her nieces and nephews. Joan lived alone following the death of her husband six years earlier. He'd been in the Navy before retirement, and following the move to Cornwall, he worked as a chef at a local pub. The couple had a property in Spain, and Joan loved spending time there, but she always loved coming back to her home in Cornwall, which was a special place for her. Since Frank's death, Joan lived alone in her bungalow with views looking out towards the Atlantic with her three cats. Incidentally, as I know that some of us wonder about what happens to pets in these stories, Joan's cats were rehoused by a local couple who lived in the village and they all lived full lives. Joan always took great pride in her appearance. Her clothing was immaculate and as we have heard she went to the hairdresser weekly and every six weeks would have the colour in her hair retinted. She always visited the hairdressers on a Wednesday when she also did her weekly shop at the local spa where she would buy lots of cat food to keep her pets happy, and sometimes a bottle of sherry, as she enjoyed an occasional glass. Joan didn't drive, so she'd be taken and collected on a Wednesday by a taxi driver. In terms of robbery being a potential motive for her murder, detectives were immediately interested in whether she appeared flush with cash on these weekly trips, and may have attracted attention. But it appeared not, and Joan always used a bank card for payment. In fact, from all the information gathered, Joan appeared to be a quite lovely person without an enemy in the world. Although sociable with people she knew in the village, she wasn't one to boast or become involved in the local gossip. Essentially, Joan was a very private lady who lived on her own and enjoyed her own company. She had many friends scattered across the country and kept in touch, mainly by phone. She was someone who was very willing to help others if she could, But most of all, at the time she died, she loved animals. And as well as her cat, she adopted any wild animal or bird that came to the house to be fed. She had a pond in her garden, and this was a particular love of hers. Detectives remained puzzled for a motive, and they couldn't understand why anyone would want to kill Joan. They could see there was no sign of forced entry at her bungalow, which strongly suggested she knew her killer. This was backed up by the lack of violence used in the murder. Detectives at the incident room immediately thought that the suspect 
was likely to be a local man and they began door-to-door inquiries and set up roadblocks to question anyone who may know anything. And very quickly, they had a suspect. Philip Williams was a delivery driver who had first alerted police to concerns over Joan when he had arrived at her house on the evening of her murder to drop off her groceries and a lottery ticket, which he picked up for her every two weeks. When there was no answer, he had tried to open the door, which, as was common for the area, was unlocked. He had called Joan's name, but nothing. So he went inside the bungalow, but again, Joan wasn't there. This was most unlike Joan, and worried for her safety, he flagged down a passing St John's ambulance, which was going past on the way to a fireworks display, and telephoned other people, including his wife, to help him. Police arrived quickly, and searching the garden discovered Joan's body just three hours later. Philip was, of course, shocked by what had happened to Joan. After all, any sort of crime was almost unheard of in Delabole. But the next day, while still stunned by the news, he tried to carry on with his normal life. But he was bemused and scared when he found police waiting for him when he arrived home from the Remembrance Sunday service at his local church and they took him to the local police station. He couldn't believe that he was really a suspect for the killing. And at interview, he was very clear that he was completely innocent telling detectives, Joan was not just a customer, she was a friend. I would never harm anyone. But detectives weren't convinced. They became suspicious of his nervous demeanour and saw that he had cuts on his arms. And so he was questioned a number of times by detectives in the coming days, arrested and bailed. But a week before he was due to attend the police station again, he received a letter from police saying he was no longer required to surrender to bail. No call, no explanation as to why his life had been turned upside down with people he'd known for years avoiding him as word quickly spread that he was a suspect. The father of four later said, I'd known Joan and her husband for many years and had been in every room of the house fixing radiators and doing other jobs. I was worried the police would get it wrong because my DNA was all over the house but they didn't seem to be looking for anyone else at the time. He said the trauma of being under suspicion meant he could no longer concentrate and he had to give up his mobile shop business. Talking about being falsely arrested, he said that his chest went all tight. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I felt down in the dumps all the time and it affects your marriage because I didn't want to go anywhere or do anything. So Philip was eliminated from the inquiry. But a month later, there were still no further arrests and the pressure on detectives was increasing. There were a number of other people who detectives wanted to eliminate from their inquiry. There was a homeless man who'd been seen sleeping rough nearby, and a slender man in his 60s, as well as a couple of men in their 20s who'd been buying beers that evening at the shop. There was a maroon car and a black car that detectives were looking to trace. DCI Dunn called another press conference where he told the media, We are still talking to people and getting information that they think is minimal, although we need to be the judge of that. Our main lines of inquiry are still concentrated on the people who visited Joan, the people who knew her, and vehicles seen in the vicinity. He continued, 
We are now a month into the inquiry, and while we haven't an identified offender, we are certainly making inroads. He tried to reassure the public by adding that there were still forensic results pending and that 38 officers were actively working on the inquiry to find Jones' killer. He confirmed they were still unclear about a motive, but added, My gut feeling is that Joan was probably confident and comfortable with whoever perpetrated this crime in her home. She didn't answer the door to just anybody. But then on Monday the 19th of January 2004, there appeared to be a significant breakthrough when police arrested a 27-year-old local man. Surely this was it. This was the time that local residents could relax again with the killer taken from the streets. Word soon filtered through that this man was Patrick Curran and he lived in a house nearby with his parents from where he could actually see Joan's home from his bedroom. His mum, Margaret, had cared for Frank, Joan's husband, before he died. Margaret had remained a friend of Joan's after his death and in addition to knowing Joan through his mum, Patrick Curran had seen Joan at a barbecue in the summer of 2003 and had once washed her house windows so he knew her well enough to be aware that she was single, and she knew him well enough to let him into her home. Police first spoke to Patrick about the killing on November the 20th. He was then asked to provide the clothes he was wearing as a potential witness. These items included a jacket and a brown Marks and Spencer's jumper. Should have been arrested for just a brown jumper. But although detectives felt that Curran could potentially have been the person they were looking for, they didn't have enough forensic evidence to place him at the scene and he was quickly released without charge. As weeks and then months passed with no progress, the inquiry was gradually wound down and life returned to normal in Delabol. Joan's family and friends were left hoping that the killer would be caught but it appeared that this would only happen through luck and that the killer had indeed got away with murder. It was 10 years later, in 2013, that the case was selected for a cold case review. And very quickly, advances in technology played a key role, with scientists confirming a tiny sample of DNA found on the blood-stained blanket that Joan Rodham's body was wrapped in was almost certainly Patrick Curran's. Officers also found clothing fibres belonging to Curran where the body was dumped. And during the review in 2013, Further fibres from a jumper and a fleece coat found on the blanket and Joan's dressing gown were linked to Curran. So who was Patrick Curran? He grew up in the village and although there was nothing particular about him that people recall, he never quite fitted in with his peers in the small community. As a child he'd attended the village primary school and he later spent five years at Sheffield University studying for a degree in computing. He did have girlfriends as he got older and moved in with one in nearby Polpero for a while. But when that ended, Curran moved back in with his parents in Delabole, spending the majority of his time on the computer in his attic bedroom, which had views towards the village outskirts and Jones' bungalow. A lot of what he had spent his time doing on the computer was clear after police seized it. Curran had an interest in pornography, featuring women much older than him in their 60s, 70s or 80s. Many of the images found showed these older ladies engaging in sexual acts with younger men, men in their teens and their 20s. Nothing wrong with that, of course, 
if that's your thing, or if you prefer, I don't know, sauna porn from Rochdale, for example, then great. But it did suggest to the police that if Curran was the man they'd been looking for, then the motive for Joan's murder was a sexual one. An indication that Curran was starting to experience issues not long before Joan's death came when Curran's former partner spoke to him on the phone in March 2003. It was a really uncomfortable call and she was shocked by how he was acting when he spoke with her. In fact, she was so concerned and disturbed by his strange manner, as she called it, that she called his mum to discuss her worries about her son. Curran had been telling her things that left her shocked and alarmed. But there were no interventions, nothing happened, and life carried on as before. Then months later, approaching Joan's murder, he visited the doctor a number of times. Several days before the murder, he'd visited a doctor complaining of a very high libido. Then on the 7th of November 2003, the day before Joan was murdered, Curran's dad rang the emergency services because he said he had genuine concerns about his son and how distressed he seemed to be. In the early hours of that day, Curran spoke to his doctor on the phone. It was a very strange call and Curran appeared to have a very unsettled mental state. He had a disembodied voice and the way he spoke to the doctor didn't feel correct. The doctor believed that Curran certainly had poor mental health and was potentially suffering from a schizophrenic illness. Curran then visited a doctor's surgery in nearby Camelford later that morning where he was assessed by a second doctor who was unaware of the previous doctor's concerns. This doctor didn't share the same concerns of the first doctor and concluded that Curran was fine. This meant that again there was no intervention. In the days after the murder, Curran left the village. 48 hours after the killing, he left Delabol to stay in nearby Bodmin, but he felt the need to go further and leave Cornwall. And 48 hours after this, he unexpectedly arrived at his grandma's house in London, before heading back to Cornwall and being questioned by police. For 10 years, Curran must have thought he had got away with it. But in the cold case review, officers were eventually able to match fibres found in Joan's house to two items of the clothes he was wearing on the day. DNA found on the blanket current used to wrap around Joan's body linked him to the scene, with forensics experts saying the chances of it not being Curran's were a billion to one. Going back through the case notes, detectives found that at 9pm on the night after Joan was killed, he built a large fire in his parents' back garden and burned his clothes and a hard drive. Officers later found a Levi's stud at the site of the fire, with the manufacturer confirming it was only used on newer clothing models, proving he was not burning rags or rubbish, as he had told police. A combination of circumstantial, forensic and fibre evidence eventually led to him being charged with the murder in March 2014. Curran refused to attend court or to have legal representation at his trial. Highly unusually, he also refused to submit a plea. After four weeks of evidence, the jury quickly and unanimously found him guilty of murder. The judge gave Curran another opportunity to come to court to hear his sentence, but he refused. Instead, the court heard that Curran passed a note to prison staff in which he said, I am an innocent man. I don't think I received a fair trial. Sentencing Curran in his absence, 
the judge sentenced him to life imprisonment for the murder of Joan Rodham, with the 38-year-old set to serve a minimum of 18 years. Judge Graham Cottle said he had no doubt that the murder was sexually motivated, which explained why Curran had gone to Joan's home. Joan was 74 years of age, a woman who took considerable care in her appearance. She almost certainly let you in, he said. There was no evidence of any forced entry. What happened then cannot be precisely known beyond that you made your sexual interest apparent. She almost certainly resisted your advances, and whether that angered you sufficiently to strangle her to death, or you killed her to silence her, I do not know. The strangulation took place in her bungalow. It seems she did not die at that point, but in all probability, lapsed into a deep unconsciousness. This inference can be drawn from the fact that she sustained a number of injuries in life. Injuries almost certainly sustained in consequence of you manhandling her body from the bungalow and then into the wheelbarrow and to its final resting place. You got away with this horrendous crime for over a decade. Hayne Rendell, the great-niece of Joan Rodham, made the following statement on behalf of the family. We are pleased today that the jury have found Patrick Curran guilty of the murder of Joan. We still find it difficult, even after all these years, to come to terms with the fact that Joan was murdered by someone that she knew and trusted. During the trial, we've heard details about Joan's death that have shocked us. Joan did not deserve to die in these circumstances. We also cannot understand why Patrick Curran did not come to court to defend himself and to face us as a family. As you know, the ripples from any murder affect a large number of people in many ways. On the podcast, I try whenever possible to look in a bit more detail at how other people are affected specifically by a murder. Today, let's return to Philip Williams, who you will recall was incorrectly arrested for Joan's murder within days of the crime. He then spent 11 years waiting anxiously because he was never officially cleared as a suspect. I think we all know how, especially in tight-knit communities, there are a number of people, maybe the majority, who always believe that someone who's been arrested for an unsolved crime is likely to be guilty. And this put tremendous stress on Philip. Due to this stress, his wife was diagnosed with chronic fatigue and the couple got divorced in 2008. She said, things were going downhill. I stopped working, even though I loved my job. Both of us were depressed. I just didn't want to live here anymore. But there is good news. The conviction of Curran changed everything and the couple have now got back together and remarried on the anniversary of their divorce. They were joined by their family, including their four children and close friends, when they exchanged their vows for the second time near Tintagel in Cornwall. Philip described the last decade as like a bad dream. And Jill said, I never thought in a million years that Phil was involved. I was 100% sure he had nothing to do with it. It was frightening. At the time, police interviewed all his customers and his friends, and he had everyone asking him about what was happening. Jill added, I always said to all our customers that when we were free of all of this, I'd fly the Union Jack from the bedroom window, which was exactly what I did. I think in time Phil will get over it, but what happened would always be with us. We'll never be able to erase something like this from our memories, but we are now beginning to look forward to better things. During sentencing for Curran, Judge Graham Cottle 
described the decision to arrest Philip Williams as incomprehensible. Devon and Cornwall Police later said they were unable to comment on individuals, but were in communication with the man who was arrested after the murder. So what do you make of what we've heard today? We of course feel the most amazing sympathy for Joan and her family. For such a lovely lady who was so kind, dignified and respectful all her life, to die in such a way, it just feels so unfair, doesn't it? And as Curran sits in his cell as you listen to this, he will no doubt be one of those lifers who will tell anyone who will listen that he was innocent. It's clear that there were signs that Curran needed help approaching the murder, but no clear interventions were made. It is difficult, I know, for whatever he said, or however distressed he seemed, he had no apparent history of violence, and didn't appear to be someone who anyone would suspect of being capable of murder. But then again, as we've heard so often on this podcast, isn't that always the way? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join almost 2,500 of us at the Facebook group where you'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you will find 26 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all for me for this week. I am off to Camden tonight to talk serial killers with top author Jeffrey Wansall. But if you don't have a ticket, don't worry, we are doing it all again on the 20th of May. So until we speak again next week, be kind, especially to me. No heckling, please. And of course, stay classy.